Hi everyone, this is Christiana Best, Assistant Professor at the University of St. Joseph, host and creator of the podcast Inside Out, Outside In. This podcast was developed for and by colleges and universities. The podcast is framed around the themes of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Our goal is to educate, inform, and build community, as well as inspire change. It is important to note that the views, information, and beliefs expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of any college or university or the Hartford Consortium of Higher Education. Today's guest is Dr. Howard Stevenson. Dr. Stevenson is a national expert on racial stress and racial trauma. He works with educators, community leaders, and parents on how to emotionally resolve face-to-face racially stressful encounters that usually occur during racial profiling in public spaces. So how are you dealing with you and your family in this coronavirus environment? Uh, We've had a little bit of a scare uh, with some of my nieces, but they ended up being negatives in uh, the family, negative. So that was relief. But other than that, we're doing pretty good, you know, as as well as anybody, I guess. How about you? Um, We're we're doing well, thank you. Um, I do have a, a number of family members in New York. I haven't been able to see them in a while. So that's a little... Um, difficult, but other than that, yeah, yeah. absolutely, scary yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, very, <laughs> very. But in the midst of it, racism always shows its head, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so my first question to you is: Would you tell me about yourself, specifically your professional background? Okay, um, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Uh, with a specialty in child and family therapy. Um, But my research as a professor at the University of Pennsylvania for 30 years um, in a psychology department in an ed school has been around um, a concept called racial socialization. So I've been interested and been researching, does it matter when parents talk to their kids about race? And in particular, over those 30 years, I and other colleagues have found that Parents who talk to their children about racial matters and children who say their parents talk to them about racial matters tend to do better on a lot of indices from academic achievement to self-esteem to anger management, depression management. Um, And over that course of time, um, while there has been some mixed results, overall, it's a protective factor. There have been very few mixed results. The challenge has been that Uh, While we could identify uh, racial socialization as protective, we weren't always sure why. And so my last decade and a half has been really about demonstrating why would talking to your child about race be protective. And um, what we found out in a theory I call recast theory, which stands for racial encounter, coping appraisal, and socialization theory, which is simply saying that when we come and confront ourselves with a racial moment, we are, um, it's incredible, it can be incredibly stressful. And the idea is that some people respond to that racial moment as if it's a uh, facing a tsunami. 
And some people um, face it as uh, no big deal. They say, I've seen this before, I've got this. And what we've learned is that children who have had some racial socialization and actually who have more socialization and more explicit strategies um, don't freak out as much when they are um, faced with a racial encounter or when they get stressed, they do not, they have tools to manage the stress. So for some people, racial stress or racial moments that are stressful uh, can debilitate them. It can respond as if it's a threat. A white teacher being asked a question about the Harlem Renaissance or disagreement around a racial issue could see that in a classroom as like a poisonous snake. And on a scale of one to 10, see it as an eight, nine, or 10. And when we're in an eight, nine, and 10 sort of reality, our brains go on lockdown. We lose peripheral vision and hearing. We are more focused on what's in front of us. And in fact, uh, we're in threat mode. We're in crisis mode. And uh, if it is a real threat, uh, our body, our thoughts, and our emotions are centered around managing the threat. But if it's really not a threat, because a racial encounter is not a tsunami and it is not a poisonous snake, um, then we are likely to make very poor decisions um, since it is not a tsunami or not a poisonous snake and overreact or be um, unable to make a, a healthy decision because we, we are basing it on very little information. So racial stress could be thought about anytime you have a racial encounter. It could be between you and another person. It could be actually um, you thinking in, in your own head, worrying about something that's going to happen later on or happen earlier in the day or a couple of years ago. If your energy, psychological energy, your thoughts, your body is being affected by uh, a racial encounter, uh, past, present, or future, you are racially stressed, and in effect, um, it, um, it could affect your functioning. And recast theory says that if you get some feedback on how to navigate that, if you do get stressed, you at least know how to manage it. And, and therein lies the, um, the, the benefit of racial socialization. That is, um, people who are stressed over long periods of time, stress is not a bad thing. It's just if you don't know, if you don't have a way to manage it. And there's more research now on the relationship of racial stress that's chronic, that's unaddressed, that, that affects healthcare, like cardiovascular issues, breast cancer in black women, um, mortality. Um, and so it is not a small thing and it's different than regular stress. So we know parents stress around raising their kids, but we also know parents of color or parents of children of color can be racially stressed. And that's very different uh, than just the stress of parenting. The stress of worrying about your child being racially profiled is an added load on your heart, body, mind, and soul. And so our research is trying to capture that and find ways to actually reduce the stress, reduce the stress so that you can function better and make better decisions. Yeah, thank you for that. I can certainly say, as a mother of a son, uh, racial stress is, some, 
thing I had to get used to. And well, I, you never get used to it, but certainly in terms of my sleep, I, I experienced a lot of sleep deprivation when my son was mm-hmm. a teenager, you know? And even mm-hmm. today we live in two different states. I have to say, unless I, if I don't hear from him in a couple of days, I, I get yes. anxious. Um, yes. So yeah, it is an added, added burden. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so can I just ask you, you talk about those students whose parents had conversations with them early on about racism tend to do better. They have better outcomes when they experience a racial encounter. Mm-hmm. What, what, what did, you, did your research give you any information about what is said and you know, what are, so, what are some things that parents who might be listening to this can say to their children and to help them with that? Yeah, so I and other colleagues around the country, folks like Diane Hughes out of NYU, um, um, Robert Sellers out of Michigan, um, a, a host of colleagues that are hard to mention all right now, Emily Smith uh, through Penn State in Georgia, um, Basically, over, over time, we were studying content of the messages. So, so messages that focused on being prepared for racism or racism barriers, messages about what to do when um, people are maybe not thinking of you as human or, or, or healthy. Um, uh, other messages around sort of um, cultural pride, you know, to, to be proud of yourself because of where you come from your culture, appreciate your culture. Um, others around egalitarianism, you know, you're just as good as everyone else. Um, or or you have to work twice as hard to be as good as, perceived as good as anyone else. Along those lines, those content messages were the early form of the racial socialization research. What I've tried to do in the last 15 or so years is to describe that um, what's the connection between a parent saying you have to work twice as hard or a parent saying you'd be proud of who you are and a young and a child's ability to feel good about themselves, particularly when they're under attack. And so um, that's one question. And another is um, if parents are stressed about their children being treated unfairly because of their race, do they get any benefit from talking to their kids about that? Does the the stress of that go down? Mm. And so, Instead of talking about messages and content, we've moved more now to um, strategies and skills. Are the parents or teachers or um, counselors actually delivering more than content, but actual skill sets? So, you know, being proud to be Black is important, but it doesn't necessarily help you navigate the microaggressions when someone's attacking you directly, either physically or emotionally. So hate crimes, as you you've written about is uh, an example in which cultural pride may be helpful in in one way, but it doesn't necessarily protect you on how to respond to those direct microaggressions. So we've moved more to talking about racial literacy um, that is more sort of an advanced form of socialization. So racial literacy would be uh, the ability to read, to recast and resolve a racially stressful encounter. So Sometimes we're in a racial moment and we don't even know it, but it can still affect us like carbon monoxide, right? And some people, regardless of racial background, can miss when a racial moment happens. Some teachers, 
some police officers, some adults, and you know, even some of our friends would be clueless sometimes because they just haven't quite got what was going on. Um, but the ability to notice when something's going on means you actually can do something about it. Not to notice it, not to read it, means you're at your you're somewhat vulnerable to the kind of hostility coming at you. Recasting is if I in a racial moment and it's a seven or eight stress level, how do I bring it down from eight, nine, and ten down to a five or six? And then we use mindfulness, we use prayer, we use cultural strength strategies to help people navigate through that. And our focus is on two minutes. Can we help people navigate the stress they experience and read in less than two minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, and that means they also have to read their bodies. They have to read their own um, thoughts and feelings in those two minutes. And then resolve is, do I make a decision that's a healthy decision that isn't an underreaction, overreaction? So now we're saying, what can help young people, whether they're in college or otherwise, whether it's coming from parents or educators or counselors, is be explicit. Teach somebody how do they navigate when somebody comes after them. We've learned a lot of young people, um, regardless of where they are, one of the biggest things they regret when they have a racial moment is they didn't speak up during the moment. They didn't say something. And they walk away feeling weak, feeling um, like they didn't do what they they said they were going to do. They didn't stand up for themselves in terms of social justice. And the stress of it lingers maybe for a year or longer. And, and we've, we've talked to folks in, in their 80s who still remember racial moments that happened when they were children, and it still bothers them as if they were right back then. So that's, that's stress turning to trauma, and, and our skill sets we're trying to teach them. What would you want to say in those moments? Mm. That wouldn't be an underreaction or an overreaction, Mm-hmm. And that also would be matching your own social justice values, um, but also in protecting yourself or protecting your loved ones. Sometimes I, reg- I might regret that I didn't speak up for somebody else who was a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And we have allies who have that kind of stress um, and regret. And so skills to teach you to speak to those microaggressions are just one example of how the old version of racial socialization, um, I think, did not go far enough. And what we're trying to say, racial literacy has a chance to give people a way to not hold on to these traumatic moments. I know it may be difficult, but I'm wondering, is it possible to give an example of a racial incident and how you use those strategies to, to help people address it? Sure. So um, I think the question is also, we think everybody has racial stress regardless of their racial background, but the history of how you navigate it can be different because of that background. So, so the idea of white fragility, for example, for folks, um, if you give you an example in which someone might feel as if um, they might be called out because they're not credible in their, their, their racial sort of positions. And the fear is so intense that the person will, um, you know, avoid discussions of race in the classroom, for example. Um, and, uh, and in many respects, be so hypervigilant that a racial moment might come up, it would affect how they function. Um, 
an example I can think of on, on college campuses is being patrolled by police for students at times in which um, they're fearful um, in a sense just by going in and out of the library, in and out of the places which they have the right to, that they're going to be surveilled. And when that occurs, and it doesn't occur for everyone, um, the stress level could literally be quite, quite high and anger could be a big part of that. So what we teach people is in those moments, can you calculate, locate, communicate, breathe and exhale? So, so reading involves how well do I calculate what feeling I'm having right now and how intense is it? So I'm angry that I'm being stopped at the university when in fact I have a card to get into this building and yet somebody is following me around as if I stole something. This could be a store, this could be anywhere. And uh, I'm at a nine in anger. And that anger is, um, uh, and I'm also sad by the fact that I'm not being treated fairly because this is, this is the fifth time this has happened to me. So I'm saddened that I have to go through this. I'm angry that I paid my money to be here and people still don't respect me or treat me humanly, humanely. Locate, calculate, locate is where in my body do I feel it? And I feel it in, in the back of my neck because I'm starting to get so angry that I feel like my shoulders are intense and I feel like I got to get ready for a fight. And then um, uh, communicate, calculate, locate, communicate. Communicate is, do I notice any self-talk during the security guard stopping me for the fifth time? And my self-talk is, these people better not mess with me again. I'm so sick and tired. The next time, this is the last time. So the self-talk is also going on in the moment. And then I have images. I have images of once being um, handcuffed by a police officer and falsely accused, and that's replaying in my head. Or I'm thinking about my children who also have had to go through this. And I know that they're on a predominantly white campus. They're in a predominantly white school. And this could happen by at any point, no matter how long they've been there. So I could have those images. That's a kind of communication. The self-talk is a kind of communication to me. And then we teach people to breathe in four counts and breathe, exhale for six counts through the experience in order before making a decision that's rash to fight, flight, or, or fright so that they can gather and bring back the oxygen so they, their brain is back online because they can see peripherally and hear peripherally and then decide what they want to do about it. Like, I don't appreciate the way you've treated me. This is the fifth time that I have been stopped. I, you know, whatever the person feels inclined that will help them heal in that moment is part of, and they can decide not to speak. They can decide, I'm not saying one thing today, but that it, at least is a choice as opposed to a reaction. Thank you. That's very helpful. I think that's extraordinarily helpful to those of us who've experienced it numerous times because mm -hmm. this happens so quickly, right? Yeah. Yeah. that um, you really actually have to practice it because you go yes. from, yeah, the, not having peripheral vision is actually so true. Just zero. <laughs> it can get really bad. It can get really bad. But I can see how it can de-escalate a lot of incidents, right? So you can choose yes. not to say anything or say something and walk away versus getting confrontational and ending up in either the hospital or in prison. Yes, but you said the magic word, practice. So 
we don't encourage anybody to, 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 to react until they've had enough practice um, because a lot of times we're, we're re-experiencing years of trauma. If this isn't the first time, then um, I may have reached a tipping point and I won't even remember what I said to somebody. You know, I'm a, I won't even remember what I did. I don't even remember what <laughs> off ramp I took, you know. Right. Uh, right. A friend of mine was describing, you know, road rage, you know, like if you can imagine road rage, sometimes you you forget that you're in a group. If somebody's in the car, you forget right. that there are other cars around your car, but right. you're after somebody, right? And yes. that, that loss of, of information or, or, or is, is key. But you said the word practice, and that's that's the way we think people can learn to do it in less than two minutes. And it takes a lot, a lot of practice. Yeah. But with support, um, we think even fifth graders can learn how to do, do this. I think that's where it needs to begin, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the students we spoke to um, were college students and they said that, I said I was really surprised that this is happening so much on college campuses. And one of them said, it didn't start here. It began in elementary school. Mm-hmm. The bullying, the racial bullying began in elementary school. So yes. it sounds like we do need to start in the elementary schools. I, I want to also talk a little bit about we have because we live in such a global global community, we have students coming from other countries where they may be the majority. You know, uh, for instance, I'm an immigrant and I came from the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Uh, while I'm really aware of white people and um, their position in the world. I grew up with all my teachers and doctors and everyone I interacted with professionally and not that were that looked like me. So when mm-hmm. I came here at age 15, it was a rude awakening, to say the least. And I'm wondering if um, your research included uh, individuals who may have come from minority majority uh, communities and are now in the United States are identified as minorities and are experiencing some of these racial issues? Um, we have done less research on that, but I spent a lot of time consulting with schools and institutions where there are diversity of African and Caribbean uh, and African-American folks, um, where there are racial tensions and there are racial stress realities. And I've been consulting for 30 years in those different places. And I've been in spaces, whether they're private schools or, or universities, you know, um, in which the tension of culture matters. Um, you know, in, in one place I can remember where some of the African students didn't have a problem using the N-word because they didn't identify with it mm. and would allow their white friends to do so mm. um, because they didn't have that history connected uh, to their to their experience, but at the same time, once something became cultural for them, for example, slurs and stereotypes around Ebola, the narrative changed, the sense of change, and you can see how in America somebody's going to get targeted sooner or later. Right. Um, so I, I've seen how you can be both on both ends of the dominant uh, on the spectrum of feeling like racial stuff doesn't bother you. Uh, American racism, but yet um, can eventually 
Um, I've also been, other colleagues like Sean Joe has been doing research on say black men and suicide and has amazing uh, data and outcomes around some of the highest suicide rates among Caribbean men. Mm. And some of that I think he relates to the idea that the assumption of not being a particular, um, not not identifying with the oppression in, in America, um, but the, the sort of mismatch between being perceived as inferior without having grown up in an inferior culture is a big clash. Yeah. And that, that clash is, uh, is hard to swallow yeah. um, because it doesn't matches, match one's own existence. And we also know from other research, even if you are a black person and black men, for example, who might see other black people as inferior, do, do not benefit from that arrogance. That that there are also health detriments mm-hmm. around mortality that that suggests if you are black and male and you see other black people as inferior, you have a lower uh, a greater mortality mm-hmm. um, because of it as a function of it or right. it's predicted by that, that sort of racialism. And so, you know, I think the idea that I'm better than somebody else is not a very good health uh, uh, coping approach right, right. Um, in, in a society that, that, you know, stereotypes yeah. and uh, uses racism as policy. Absolutely. Um, good, very good point. I think for me initially, um, I knew something was not right. I didn't have the, the vocabulary for it. And my African-American friend helped explain it to me. She's like, this is racism. And I was like, oh, because I would go <laughs> to her and explain what I was experiencing because right. I trusted her, but didn't have the vocabulary for it. But she was then able to help me understand. And right. that was really very helpful. Um, so when I think of racial literacy, is there a component of it speaks to those from the majority culture who may or may not know what to do, particularly as it relates to those subtle forms, microaggressions? Um, so I was speaking to a colleague and she said, you know, um, some of the students complain that they're always called on to represent their race right? That's a typical um, uh, microaggression in the classroom. And she said, well, could it be because I don't necessarily know anyone else and I, something comes up? You know, so I think what she was saying, there were unintentional um, micro uh, racial incidents that occur in the classroom quite frequently, and it comes out of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yes, and I think, uh, and this is with a white teacher. Yeah. Think? yeah. Yes, yes, and I think part of the work that we're trying to do, at least if you start with the notion of what impact does anything have on you? Like even, can you measure or calculate the level of stress? Maybe it's joy that you feel during a racial moment. It doesn't have to be negative. But if, if, uh, if a, an event is stressful, even if unintentional, start there instead of whether the thing was intentional or not. Because from the health sense, you would never um, judge somebody hitting another person with a car 
um, from the vantage point of intentionality. Your first response would be to deal with the person's injury. And then a legal reality allows us to consider is it intention or not, perhaps. Right. Too often around race, we use intentionality as the first place to go to judge whether the situation was credible or um, um, negative on my health. Mm-hmm. And we're saying if it was racially stressful, that could still impact you despite the intentionality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would mean even I have the right because it was stressful. Let's say it was a nine. And I know it was unintentional, but it's, the harm is still a nine. I could speak to it if I decided to do that as my approach. Um, and the person would still have the right to say it was unintentional. Right. And it was also harmful. Right. Or, or at least that could be part of the debate rather than I shouldn't have this feeling of a nine and anger because right. the other person didn't intend it. And so... Um, we want more dialogue about how these moments are, as learning experiences, are microaggressions and harmful despite their intentionality. Yeah, and I think this could be helpful to administrators in higher ed. Yes. Um, not knowing what to do. One of the students indicated that um, they don't feel that the school moves to address the issue timely and in an appropriate way. It's very political. But if they were to approach it from the perspective you just described, whereby someone is harmed, whether it was intentional or unintentional, then yeah. and address the person who is harmed by it, right? Then mm-hmm. that, that's going to help validate and address the issue of racism, as well as communicate to the person who perpetrated it intentionally or not, that it's incorrect. Yes. Absolutely. And I think a a competent administrator would be able to navigate that, um, that, you know, reality. I think we have often thought of racial politics and conversation as uh, from a legal frame uh, of guilt or innocence, racist or non-racist as a binary, you know, either you're good or bad. So Mm -hmm. it's morality as a function of, uh, as opposed to, um, competence, character instead of competence. So if a person is a good person, we have, we cannot hold them accountable for their unintentional misdeeds because they're good. And in fact, um, you know, a competent administrator would be able to be able to make the distinction that I could have been unintentionally incompetent. (laughs) And in in a sense, um, my ignorance is not a defense for maltreatment or mistreatment or malpractice for that, for that matter. And so, um, and I think, you know, young people or people who have been on the other end have a right to, to speak to it. But I think it also allows for a larger dialogue that's possible. I mean, today, even in this catastrophic time we live in, um, you hear about uh, students on college campuses having coronavirus parties where they're wearing face masks that represent people of Asian descent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, even in this crisis, the racism shows its head. And Mm -hmm. I, 
I'm trying to understand. I know you talked a little bit before, or I may have read it, where you talked about the neuroscience and how people in the dominant culture feel and react when they perceive they perceive um, vulnerable populations as racially threatened. I don't know if this is how it intersects with what is currently happening on some of the college campuses. Hmm. I think it was it was more. Um the idea that when we, we when there has been research done around um, from a neuroscience and in which people have been shown pictures of faces of black faces versus white faces um, and shown to white people about uh, and then measuring their sense of threat uh, in those moments or pictures of snakes and spiders and then looking at black faces that the same spikes around spiders and snakes were were attached to, uh, were similar to the spikes to black and brown faces. Um, some of that research suggests that this response is primitive threat, right? Um, another notion though, it, and that would be like if somebody just came out of the blue or the person perceived they came out of the blue or a racial moment just shows up out of nowhere, people overreact, their body gets spastic, their eyes dilate, everything, their stutter, sweat. Um, I've seen people literally fall down and, and lose control of their bodies out of the fear that they might be perceived as racist uh, because they are unprepared for the moment. But then there's a notion of supremacy and superiority that when I am feeling vulnerable, I use dominance as a way to cope. And mm. then I target the most vulnerable populations I can find uh, in a racialized sort of uh, totem pole. And so to use someone else in, in, as a mask uh, is a sense of dominance, but it's a very primitive response to my own inferiority, right? I have to go dominate another group, even right. psychologically, to get to feel good about myself. And I think you could argue white supremacy, that's a particular key factor and dynamic that I can't just talk about being superior. I have to demonstrate superiority, right? Supremacy is is not little s, it's big s. And I got to show you, um, I got to be, it's got to be observable. Um, and that's, you know, in some respects, you know, for as many apologies for blackface as we've had over the last three years or 23 years or whatever, it's it's amazing that it still persists as a, as a, primitive desire to prove oneself to another group of other people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I, I also want to talk about, um, and you let me know if this is, you feel comfortable talking about this, but, you know, um, the stats in terms of faculty in um, predominantly white institutions and academia is pretty low for people of color. I don't recall what it is at this point. Um, mm -hmm. But um, faculty also are just as in danger of experiencing frequent microaggressions and mm -hmm. um, racist, uh, racism, I should say, as students are, right? And right. oftentimes as faculty, we tend to just get very focused on what we have to do and we don't feel comfortable addressing it in a way that's um, meaningful 
um, because we're so isolated and there's so much at stake, particularly the tenure track uh, professors, those that are not tenured yet. Mm -hmm. Do you have any words of wisdom for faculty who are not tenured um, in terms of how to cope? I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I think, uh, you know, one of, one of those things is to write down your experiences. And because um, our job is to write. And I, if I had, um, um, one of my goals was to write a book about my experiences. And I end up intertwining those experiences throughout several writings as opposed to one. But um, what was helpful for me, even when I didn't feel like I had colleagues, was to write down my experiences. And from a trauma notion, we've known this with children and adults who've been abused physically and sexually, that if you don't um, report what has happened to you in some way, eventually you'll start to not believe that it happened to you. And if you can't find people who actually will believe you, you'll start to question your right to speak up about what has happened. And so writing it down first is a validation that your experience happened. But another thing is that you get to examine it in the same way that we talk about calculate, locate, communicate. What effect does it have on you to have gone through that experience? Has it affected how you, what you're gonna write about? What's your topic? I've seen that happen to a lot of colleagues. Um, another thing is to find people who can support you. You know, it's not a, a if you should do that. It's you, you gotta find somebody, whether it's outside of the university, who understands what it's like to be a non-tenured person and to, to um, build that support because it is, um, nobody gets through it alone, even though there's a sort of myth about that. Um, and so even if you got through it alone, your health is going to be compromised. So uh, find somebody who, to help support you. And if there's a way to integrate your experiences in your research, it so happened to me, my talking about what happened to me was very connected to the research I was doing around racial stress and socialization and literacy. So the interventions we've created has been how to help people through those moments. And, um, and also whether it's children or families or, or, um, or students, you know, we're starting to work with police officers as well who get mm -hmm. stressed in these moments there's a way in which your experiences can turn to your product and scholarship. And so um, that's, that would be killing two birds with one stone. And not everybody studies this issue, but I'd say regardless of what your discipline is, you still could have a scholarly connection to these experiences and make them pedagogical. You know, Don't just um, somehow see them outside of what you're doing. Um, and I think then then you're adding to your publication record as opposed to, you know, this is distracting me from getting to my stuff. That's a very good point. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I was going to say that's a good point. The reason why I brought that up is because I am doing a research project on microaggression in the workplace. It, uh, and I, I interviewed um, a faculty, a non-tenured fac faculty, and her experience was so painful. Mm -hmm. It really stood out. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, 
there were primarily women of color, but hers really stood out for me. It really was yeah. very, very, very profound. Um, yeah. yeah, I actually saw an article today. I haven't read it, but it was around uh, black women or women in the academy and, and with ABDs and the stress about that in some respect. Right. I want to read it because it's, it fits in so many ways. I think, you know, um, I think using therapy as well um, that is also underestimated is how that can be helpful to navigate mm-hmm. these very real, mm-hmm. real issues. Um, mm-hmm. So, so uh, we're coming towards the end. Um, I wanted to know if, are there any messages you'd like to give parents who are thinking about sending their student, their children to colleges, particularly predominantly white institutions, mm-hmm. and those students that are currently now in college who are students of color? I think, you know, here at the University of Pennsylvania, we have several people um, who we would target as mentors around racial challenges. And one in uh, Dr. Brian Peterson here at Penn uh, runs the Maku Center. Uh, he, you know, I would ask parents, look on every campus. Is there somebody whose job it is to support students of color and go and meet them and introduce your child to them? Because they, they go um, sometimes 24-7 out of the way to be available to students when the, when the weirdest things happen. And, you, you know, um, and it's not an RA necessarily. It's not someone who could solve that problem that you need somebody who has status in the institution to represent you, uh, who can even navigate victim services or counseling or, or um, they're more, you know, and we used to have a college house devoted to African-American and African culture and literature. Um, and we ran the house sort of like uh, a community where the person at the front desk was like a house mother she took on the role. The students still appreciated her. It wasn't having a parent, your own parent, but it was having somebody that gave you a place of home mm-hmm. so that when you went and went out into the classes and in the, in the larger um, campus, um, you didn't have to give up your cultural sense of who you were. Um, so I would encourage parents to seek out those people when you go to visiting, um, and not just a regular journey or tour. Um, and then I would also ask my children, you know, you know, how they would want to navigate a cultural experience and what it's been like for them in high school. Um, and some schools offer that contrast, even in predominantly white institutions. Yeah. Um, I, I, one last question. Um, most predominantly white institutions are unaware. I think some people are cognizant of the fact that when students of color come into their institutions, um, they may not feel as comfortable and welcome, even faculty, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But because it is so ingrained in their culture, they may not even be aware of it. Does that make sense? It's like a fish swimming in water. He doesn't understand what, you know, what it's like. Because it's so normal. Right. I'm wondering if there are any, do you have a message for, say, white faculty or um, administrators who are, who would, you know, are probably not as cognizant of what it's like for students of color to come into a white institutions, institution? 
I think um, it's a hard audience in the sense that I would say you've got to get more competent at navigating the racial politics of of your work. And I find I have great colleagues, white colleagues who do that. And so I'm less patient with those who don't know how to do it. Not that I think they're bad people. I just think we, we don't tolerate incompetence in other areas. Like if you couldn't write, you wouldn't necessarily get a job as a professor. Uh, we couldn't just wait for you to somehow learn how to write. You know, it's a, it's a prerequisite for the job. Right. <laughs> and I would say this competence is a prerequisite. You should have this and not to have it um, means I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I can prepare you in the time. I need to prepare the students for you and to deal with your ignorance or incompetence. Um, but, but to those who might say, I need help, I would say, then work on your own racial story. You know, we have a proverb in our work, the lion story will never be known as long as the hunters want to tell it. Mm-hmm. And when our students come to the campus, they come, uh, some of them come with a narrative of who they are, they know it. And those that don't, we help them know it so that they can, be bold about their difference as opposed to be sheepish. But the same is true for white leaders and, and, and professors. Many do not know their own racial stories and they're sheepish when it comes to classrooms. When people bring up race, they distract, they move on. They, they say it's not important. Right they, right. they even are hostile to students who ask questions about it. And I think that's part of a problem that I would say, you know, you need to get help and competence right. in that arena. Yeah, and sometimes it can be as subtle as someone wearing dreadlocks, right? A student sure. coming into school with dreads or have a thick accent or, you know, happens to look physically, you know, to yeah. them intimidating, sure. right? Things that you can't necessarily change about who you are. Exactly, yeah. And the issue is not, you're not a bad person, but you could still be incompetent, right? This isn't an issue about you being a bad person um, or judging your personality, but we can judge your qualifications for caring for other people, which is in your job description or teaching other people fairly. And, um, and that's where, you know, I've appreciated my white colleagues who can handle those kind of conflicts and keep on and learn from them. Right. Thank you so very much for taking the time to speak to us today. This is such an important topic. And while we're in the midst of a a crisis, it still raises its head. It's still an issue that comes up. Um, Thank you for all the work that you're doing. It's very, very important. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Best. Pleasure being here.